it's exciting, isn't it? Sorry if uh, you thought we were just watching a video today. It's not quite the end of term. I'm not allowed to just show a video yet. That's a little series um, uh, by a group called Lumo, L-U-M-O, um, and they've recorded all the Gospels um, in video form, and they're excellently done. And they're on the Version Bible app. If you've got the Version Bible app, you can um, watch them on there. But we're going to maybe show a few more clips from that as we go along in this series, because the whole of the Gospel of Mark is on there as well. Um, so I do encourage you to have a look at those yourself. As Steve has mentioned, we are going to be doing a brand new series today. It's got that, that new series smell. And um, we're going to be looking at the Gospel of Mark. So that's really exciting, isn't it? And um, we, it's the reason we've called it Mark My Words. It's a little pun for you. I'm sure that won't get old over the, the eight weeks. Um, it also might not be true, but we'll, we'll come back to that um, later on. There's quite a lot I want to do with you this morning. There's quite a lot of information that I'm going to throw at you, um, and I don't want it to become too heavy. So I thought just to kind of get the brain juices flowing, we'd start with a little quiz today, um, and I've got prizes. <laughs> these aren't here in, in case I get snacky. Um, this is, these are here for you. So it's a really simple quiz. What I'm going to do is I'm going to show you the, a photo um, of a famous author, um, with a quote of something that they said. And all you've got to do is um, tell me who that author is. And then I'll throw you, a, is this a bad idea? <coughs> I'm, quite, I'm quite a good throw. Well, <laughs> if I hit anyone in the eye, I apologise already. Okay, here's the first one. Right, who said that first? Over here, okay. You ready? Hey, that is J.K. Rowling, a new up-and-coming author. Um, she says, I write what I write, I write what amuses me. It's totally for myself. I never dreamt in my wild dreams I expect or expected this popularity. She's done all right for herself, hasn't she, J.K. Rowling? Okay, next one. It is Stephen King. Very good. Right, this is a bit longer. You ready? Hey. He said, the most important things are the hardest to say because words diminish them. Okay, I'm going to give you a harder one now. You're going to get more challenging. Oh, who was that? Someone was struck. Was that you, Vic? No? Oh, Martin. <laughs> On the sound desk. <laughs> right, another hard one. Anyone know this one? George Orwell, very good. I heard it in this direction first, so whoever gets it, there we are. <laughs> he said, I don't wish to comment on the work. If it doesn't speak for itself, it's a failure. Quite a harsh critic of his own work. Um, okay, let's try this one. Yes, Bill Shakespeare, very good. You can have a Snickers there. <laughs> Well done, Tim. That is correct. He said, write until your ink dries up and then moisten it again with your tears and craft some emotional line that reveals your sincerity. He was always a bit dramatic, wasn't he, uh, <laughs> Bill Shakespeare? Right, I think I've got another one. <laughs> Missionary to the English. Anyone? Anyone? No one. No one knows who that is. Gosh, right. 
right, come into you. Critically acclaimed. <laughs> Steve Jonathan. <laughs> All right, one more, last one, last one. Not Paul. Mark, well done, Grace. You're paying attention. There you go. <laughs> right, I'll put these up. <coughs> that is Mark, or somebody's less than flattering impression of what Mark might have looked like. Me and the poor guy. Looks like he's been on the sauce, doesn't he, with those <laughs> red cheeks. Mark, also known as John. He's the author of the Gospel of Mark. Um, and that is the opening line of his book there, the good news about Jesus Christ, or Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God. He only wrote one book that we, we know about, and it's contained within our Bibles. And we're going to, um, over the next weeks, be looking at the first eight chapters of this book together. Now, we're going to do um, some of the work for you on Sunday mornings, um, but the simple fact of the matter is there is way too much in this gospel for us to cover in the 25, 30 minutes that we have together each week. And so you're going to have to do some of the work for yourselves. Sorry about that. I hope that's okay. Um, but all joking aside, this is really um, a journey that we want to go on together as a church, a whole church. And whether you're in a life group or not, what we'd love it is if you would commit through these next eight weeks to reading a chapter each week and discovering what it is that God is going to say to you through these words of Mark. And so, um, in order to do that, what I want to do this morning is give you some tools for study. Some ways in which you can approach these words in this chapter. Um, your life group leaders, as Steve has mentioned already, are going to be receiving some study guides with some helpful information and a video that you'll be able to watch each week. Um, but also, we want you to read this on your own. And then come together and discuss it. And as you read it on your own, there are some questions I'd really like you to think about as you read the chapter. There's four questions in particular. The first question is, why did Mark write this? Why did Mark write this? J.K. Rowling writes to amuse herself, apparently. But why did Mark write what he wrote? What is he trying to communicate? What motivates him? What's on his heart? Is he simply trying to write a bestseller? Or is there something deeper going on with his words? Number two, I want you to ask, what did it mean for his readers? People have been um, reading Mark's Gospel for hundreds of years, but the book originally was written to a specific group of people at a specific point in time. What difference might his words have made to their lives, in their situation? How might they have been impacted by what it is that Mark writes? Number three, and this is a little bit um, of a spoiler, this one. I don't want to give too much away, but Mark's gospel is primarily about Jesus. Um, and so I want you to ask, what does it reveal about Jesus? What does it teach us about Jesus? Um, in his book, he talks about the things Jesus said, but in particular in Mark's Gospel, he talks about the things that Jesus did. Why did he do those things? What is Mark trying to communicate through that? Um, and, and what lessons can we learn behind the actions? And then finally, number four, what did it mean, what does it mean for me? Because the Bible is both um, historical and the Bible is timeless as well, and as well as understanding why Mark wrote what he did at the time that he wrote it, we need to ask, what does it mean for my life now? 
Is there a principle that I need to apply? Is there a truth I need to learn? Is there a, a hope that I can hang on to for my own life? So those are the four questions I would like you to think about each week as you read the chapter. Why did Mark write this? What did it mean for his readers? What does it reveal about Jesus? And what does it mean to me? And then as you gather together in life groups, you can discuss what you've discovered in your own reading together. You can all bring something to share from the chapter. Now, um, if you're not in a life group, as Steve has said already, uh, we really want to encourage you to join one. Um, if you can't join one, I know many of you are very busy and work irregular hours, then maybe there's somebody in the church that you can kind of buddy up with on this. Maybe there's someone that you can just form a partnership with. And even if that's just over a WhatsApp group, hey, this is what the chapter has said to me this week. This is the thing that leapt out for me. This is the thing that I felt God was saying to me as I read it. And just so we can encourage each other as we go on this journey together. Is that okay? Does that make sense? So, in the time that's left, what I want to do is just um, talk through this chapter or bits of this chapter um, and really use these four questions myself with you here now. So the first question is why? Why did Mark write this? What was his motivation? Well, we are introduced to Mark in our Bible, not through his gospel actually, but through the book of Acts, written by Dr. Luke. And Luke tells us in Acts 12.12 that Mark's mother was called Mary, which is a very popular name at the time, um, and that people were meeting in their house to pray for Peter, who was in prison at the time, when Guess what? As they were praying, Peter showed up and knocked on the door. Peter was, of course, um, one of Jesus' disciples uh, or apostles, the founder of the church in Jerusalem. And so it looked like Mark kind of grew up surrounded by these important early church founders. At the end of chapter 12, we're told that Paul, who you may also have heard of, wrote most of the New Testament, actually took Mark with him on his travels. There he is. And Paul's mission really was to travel the world and to tell people about Jesus, particularly people who weren't Jewish. And as he did that, he went around and he established uh, many, many churches. And we find out from Paul's letter to the church in Colossae that Mark was also cousin of another of Paul's travelling companions. Actually, should we do it for a sweet? Does anyone want to have a guess? Who was cousin of Mark? Nope. Barnabas, who said that? Yes. Well done. Have a bounty. This could get exciting, couldn't it? <laughs> yeah, he was cousin of Barnabas. And, and the two of them actually, they end up travelling to Cyprus together on mission without Paul later on. Paul mentions Mark in his letter to Timothy as well. He says, get Mark, get him and bring him with you because he's helpful to me in my ministry. And so it looks like Mark is kind of really highly thought of, really highly respected and used and valued amongst the early church leaders. Not only does Paul talk about Mark, but Peter also mentions him in his letter and in fact refers to him as his son. As his son, not his biological son, but this kind of real loving term of endearment that he uses for him. No doubt as 
they kind of grew up with the house church and Peter visited, they became quite close. And in fact, there's an early church historian called Papias who um, says that Peter gave Mark the information for his gospel. That it's Peter's words that Mark is writing down. And if indeed these are Peter's stories given through Mark, we should have confidence in their reliability because Peter was obviously one of Jesus' closest followers. It's very likely that Mark was the earliest gospel written. Um, we think that because both Matthew and Luke borrow huge bits of his gospel for their own work. And so this is Mark. He's a friend of Paul, travelled with him round the world on mission, cousin of Barnabas, like a son to Peter. Influential in the early church and clearly somebody whose words are worth listening to, whose words are worth exploring. But why did he write them in the first place? What is the, the point of Mark's book? Was he just trying to entertain people or was there something deeper going on here? Well, I guess at this point it's helpful to know who it is that Mark is writing to. So picking up on the clues in his writing, it looks as though Mark is communicating primarily with non-Jewish people. Um, and it also looks like he's writing to people who live in Italy and specifically people who live in Rome. And we know that because Mark steers clear of too many Old Testament quotations or Jewish festivals. Matthew loves that. He's all about the Old Testament quotes, but, but Mark steers clear of those. And he also provides Latin equivalents to many Greek phrases and expressions through his book. And if indeed Mark is writing to this, this audience, this uh, audience of believers, non-Jewish believers based in Rome, um, then really he's writing to some people who are living in maybe the most challenging circumstances of all time. People who are having some real difficulties. I mean, to start with, just being a follower of Jesus was hard. It was tough in those days. If you happen to be um, a Jewish convert, it would mean that you were ostracized from your family and your friends. You were, you were kicked out and, and needed to kind of make it on your own. And if you were coming from a, a non-Jewish background, then you'd have been mocked and ridiculed for believing in this new religion about a crucified God. What's that all about? People would be saying, well, why don't you follow the mainstream religions? What's wrong with Zeus or Hermes or any of those guys? Why are you going after this strange new religion? But in AD 64, things got much, much worse for the believers. Much, much worse. There was a fire which broke out in Rome. The great fire of Rome. It lasted for six days and it destroyed huge parts of the city. In fact of the 14 districts that existed in Rome at the time only four remained unscathed but that wasn't the issue. You see after they put the fire out, in fact actually they, they put the fire out after six days and then it reignited for a further three days but when it was finally out the emperor at the time, a guy called Nero, immediately began work on his brand new palace and it was called the Golden House. And what's interesting is this new palace took up a third of the city of Rome. And so as you can imagine, rumours began to surface that maybe, maybe Nero had started this fire deliberately in order to make way for his new palace. And that kind of makes sense if you know Nero because this wasn't a good dude. He murdered his own mother for political gain and so not really someone you can trust. But in order to quash the rumours, Nero blamed the Christians. He said, nah, it's them. 
It's the Christians that started the fire. A Roman historian, Tacitus, says this, Consequently, to get rid of the report that he was responsible for the fire that raised Rome, Nero fastened the guilt and inflicted the most exquisite tortures on a class hated for their abominations called Christians by the populace. Mockery of every sort was added to their deaths. Covered with the skins of beasts, they were torn by dogs and perished, or were nailed to crosses, or were doomed to the flames and burnt to serve as nightly illumination when daylight had expired. Christians were being punished and killed for a crime they didn't commit, murdered at the hands of the state and being used as torches to light the streets at night. Things were very bleak indeed, really, really tough. And so Mark writes them this book in order to give them hope. He wants to give them a reason to hold on, a reason to keep going, a reason not to give up. He wants them to know that actually things are going to be okay, that they can get through this. And so what did it mean for his readers? What did it mean for his readers? The second question this morning. Well, to begin to answer that, I want to just turn to the, the text. If you haven't done so already, please open to Mark um, 1. This is the opening line of his book, the opening words. He says, the beginning of the good news about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God. He wants his readers to know from the very beginning that this is a book about Jesus. But more than that, he wants them to know that this is good news. Finally, (laughs) at last, some good news. In fact, this is where we get the word gospel. Gospel just means good news. In ancient Greek, it's the word euangelion, which aside from being really fun to say, um, translates as joyful tidings, a good message, something worth hearing. When it was the, the emperor's birthday, you would receive a euangelion telling you to get the bunting down from the loft and blow up the balloons because it was time to celebrate. And so these Christians who were suffering, these Christians who were dying at the hands of the state, Mark writes to them and says, listen, I've got some good news. I've got something worth hearing, something that you need to know. And Mark goes on to tell us that 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 good news is located in the person of Jesus. It's good news, and the good news is Jesus. However, much like Mary, uh, Jesus was a popular name at the time. There were lots of Jesus's around and so uh, he clarifies he says it's Jesus the Messiah your translation might say Jesus Christ that's not his surname as some have come to believe Um, it simply means the anointed one Jesus the anointed one not that Jesus from down the fish market or Jesus that lives up the lane with Sally this is Jesus the anointed one and then he goes even further he says he's the son of God The Son of God. In the ancient world, a son was someone who was thought of as the best reflection of the Father. Not just their looks, but their ideals and their hopes and their dreams and their character and their personality. All of that was contained in the Son. So this wasn't just someone who was anointed by God, but this was someone who was the very essence and being of God in human form. Mark's readers needed to know that someone had their back in this life and the next. And so Mark tells them who that is. In those first few verses, he sets out his stall. He says, it's good news. It's Jesus, the 
the anointed one, and he's God. And then he's off. He's off, and Mark doesn't really slow down. His gospel moves at like 100 miles an hour. The, boy, the guy barely comes up for breath. He just keeps going. Example, um, and is like one of his favorite words. It's used 1,300 times in the 16 chapters that he writes. He says he did this, and, and then he did this, and then he did the other thing, and then he went and had a go at that, and then he came there and did that, and 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 he goes on and on and on and on and on. It's as though Mark is desperate for his readers to hear about this Jesus. Another of his favorite words is the word immediately. He uses that over 40 times. And there's this sense of urgency that comes through in his writing. He's he's desperate for his readers to know all that he does about Jesus. And so as his readers are being given hope... And, and, and encouragement, and they're, they're being told and reassured that the one that they have chosen to follow has their back, that he is still for them. And there's all sorts of different ways that they receive that message through the chapter. Um, in fact, Mark is very clever. As you read through, you will notice this week that he allows his readers to discover Jesus through the eyes of lots of different people. It's almost as though he gives us these, these quick-fire testimonies through the book. He starts with a homeless dude called John, And then there's some random fishermen, and then there's an unclean spirit, and then there's a mother-in-law. Just to be clear, the the unclean spirit and the mother-in-law are separate stories, Um, not one. Um, And then there's a... Sorry, Judy. Um, And then there's a man with leprosy. It sort of sounds like the cast of a Channel 4 sitcom, doesn't it? Like it's bonkers. And with each of these stories, Mark gives his readers, readers another reason to trust Jesus. Another reason for them to put their hope in him. But he also gives them a challenge. He gives them a challenge because each of these people, they respond to Jesus in in completely different ways. The homeless guy says, I'm not worthy to untie his sandals. The voice of God says, this is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. The fishermen, they choose to leave their nets and follow him. The unclean spirit says, I know who you are. You're the Holy One of God. And then it flees. It just like runs away. The mother-in-law receives healing and then responds by serving him. The leper receives healing and then responds by disobeying him. And it's almost as though Mark wants to challenge his readers. How are you going to respond to Jesus? What response are you going to make? What decision are you going to make? Are you going to follow him? Are you going to flee? Are you going to obey him? Or are you going to disobey him? What are you going to do? How are you going to respond? And so as he's drawing his readers' attention to the good news of Jesus, Mark is also challenging them. He's also challenging them. In the toughest of situations, I know how hard things are for you now, but what is your response to Jesus? Because he's still here for you. The third thing is, what does this reveal about Jesus? What does this reveal about Jesus? Well, the answer really is, is like loads. <laughs> Like lots, lots and lots. The whole chapter is packed full of information. It's like bursting at the seams. And I wish I had time to unpack it all for you this morning, uh, but I don't. Uh, (laughs) um, But let me just whiz through and give you some little teasers. All right, little teasers. So verse 1, we're told Jesus is the Son of God. We looked at that briefly already. 
The Son bears the image of the Father, God in human form. What does God look like in human form? That's fascinating. Verses 2 to 7, we're told Jesus is superior to John the Baptist, a popular man at the time. We'll come back to that in a minute. Verse 8, we're told that Jesus has the authority to baptize with the Holy Spirit. That's huge. Baptizing with water is about washing away sins and, and moving on from past life. But baptizing with the Holy Spirit, that's receiving God into yourself. How does that happen? Verse 9 to 11, Jesus is firmed by the Father and the Holy Spirit. God says, this is my boy. I'm well proud of him. I love him. And then the Holy Spirit comes in the form of a dove. A dove, what does that point to? That's really interesting. Why does it come as a dove? I wonder, verses 12 to 13, Jesus is with the wild animals and the angels and he overcomes temptation. He's in the wilderness and he makes him through. What message does that send to the readers? What does it mean to get through the wilderness? Verses 14 to 15, Jesus proclaims and initiates the kingdom of God. What exactly is the kingdom of God? How do we get on board with that? Verses 16 to 20, Jesus chooses the disciples who in turn choose to follow him. What exactly did they see in him that made them want to follow him? What is it that they discovered? Verses 21 to 28, Jesus removes an evil spirit like a boss. And in doing so, demonstrates his authority over the demonic. The evil spirits are so afraid of him. What do they know that we don't know? Verses 29 to 34, Jesus heals like tons of people. Lows, what does that reveal about Jesus and his hope for humanity and his authority? Verses 35 to 39, Jesus reveals his main priority is to preach and teach to as many people as possible, in as many places as possible. Why? What do they need to hear? What do they need to know? And verses 40 to 45, Jesus heals a leper and asks for obedience, but is ultimately ignored. What are the consequences of disobeying Jesus? I wonder. It's quite a lot <laughs> going on in that chapter. <laughs> So there's 11 things there um, for you to explore and research on your own. Um, but I, I will put questions online, don't worry. You don't need to play that back in slow motion. Um, but I'm going to do one for you now so it becomes a nice even 10. Because, you know, 10 is easier to look at than 11, isn't it? So let's have a look at Jesus and John the Baptist, the first few verses. In Mark 2, it says this. As it's written... In Isaiah the prophet, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord and make straight paths for him. And so John the Baptist appears in the wilderness preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. It says the whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him confessing their sins and were baptized by him in the Jordan River. John wore clothing made of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist and he ate locusts and wild honey. And this was his message. After me comes the one more powerful than I, the straps of whose sandals are not worthy to stoop down and untie. What does this reveal about Jesus? What does this little section tell us about Jesus? Well, firstly, it tells us that Jesus' arrival was spoken about in the Old Testament. Mark doesn't do this very much in his gospel, but here he does. He does it at the start. He quotes Malachi 3, 1, that says, I will send a messenger who will prepare the way for me. And Isaiah 43, that says, A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, and make straight in the desert a highway for God. And the messenger that Mark is referring to here is John, or John the Baptist, John the Baptizer. I love how Mark introduces him. He says he appeared... In the wilderness. Bang! There he is. He's just arrived. No backstory, no introduction. He's just there. 
If you read about John in Luke's Gospel, we find out that his parents are called Zechariah and Elizabeth. We find out that Elizabeth and Mary hung out when she was pregnant. Luke even records the song that Zechariah sang when John was born. Mark's like, nah, none of it. He just appeared. He's there. Done. No messing. And the reason Mark doesn't bother with all of that stuff is because for him it's just detail. What Mark cares about in these words is that you know that this is a messenger from God and that you know the message is Jesus is coming. That's it for him. And so he quotes a bit of the Old Testament to show us it's part of God's plan. Then he gives us a couple of visual clues. Talks about how he lived in the wilderness and wore clothing made of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist. Not a popular fashion choice of the day, but an image that's supposed to remind us of another of God's messengers. Should we do another sweep? Who's it supposed to remind us of? For your Bible nerds out there. Elijah, well done, Nick. You right with the bounty? I'm just giving out the ones I don't like. <laughs> Elijah, that's right. 2 Kings 1 says he had a garment of hair and a leather belt around his waist. You ever dress like your heroes? Beyonce wears a new top. Do you go out and try and find it? No? Just me? Okay. Apparently John liked to dress like Elijah because he also had a message of repentance. He called people to be baptized in the Jordan. Not just a sprinkling of water as was the custom with many um, Jewish ceremonial practices, but a full-on dunking. Baptism means immersion or overwhelm, um, and we do the same here. That's how we baptize people here. The only equivalent practice that existed in Judaism was for outsiders, people who were not Jewish that wanted to become Jewish and therefore had to have their old lives washed away, taken care of, made clean. And so for a Jewish person to accept John's baptism was tantamount to saying, I may as well not even be Jewish. I may as well not even be chosen by God. So this was kind of, kind of an offensive message. And John is trying to bring people back to a point where they realize their need for a savior. Where they realize that they have a need to be put right with God again. And this is how he prepares them to meet with Jesus. That verse in Mark quotes um, Isaiah about building a road for the arrival of a king. He says you need to make a clear way, fill in the potholes. It's like... Um, it's like when the Queen, you know, when the Queen comes to visit towns in the UK and they everyone tidies up and washes off the graffiti and tears down the burnt out pub down the road. It's that sort of thing, but it's not just a physical thing, it's it's a heart thing. John is saying you need to get rid of that rubbish in your heart. Make room because someone who's coming who can who can fill it. Someone who is, is coming who can put you right with God. And and despite the kind of challenging nature of that message, it was a popular one. Mark tells us that the whole Judean countryside come out to see John. The people knew something was wrong. They knew that things were not as they were supposed to be. And so this, this hairy man in the wilderness becomes a voice for change. It becomes quite a powerful um, message. But, but listen to what he says in verse 7. He says, After me comes one more powerful than I, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. Now that might seem like a very odd thing to say until you realize that at the time there was a, a saying that rabbis had that their followers would be required to do any duty except that of untying their sandals because that duty was reserved for the slaves 
and the servants only. And so John is saying, Jesus is so far beyond me that I'm not even worthy to perform the duties of a slave for him. Of course, the amazing thing is that Jesus comes to John to be baptized. Steve started our service with that quote from Philippians that says, Jesus made himself nothing, taking on the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. He humbled himself. And so what does this reveal about Jesus? Well, it shows us that his coming was predicted, that like the kings and queens of old, that his coming was heralded by a prophet of God, that people were called to make themselves ready to receive him, and that his divinity and his power were recognized by the most popular preacher of the day. What an opening. What an opening. Who is this person that we need to prepare ourselves to meet? Who is this person that is coming into the world that we should get ready for? Mark really knows how to tease us. And that's the first seven verses. What else might you discover this week? So the last question What does this mean for me? What does this mean for me? What message are we going to take away this morning from those first seven verses? Well, maybe this morning you're somebody who needs just a little bit of good news. Maybe you're someone who needs a little euangelion in your life this morning. Your situation might not be as bleak as those early believers who were being used as streetlights, but you might be in a tough spot nevertheless. You might need a little injection of hope this morning. Mark wants you to know that 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 hope is found, that hope is located in the person of Jesus. He wants you to know that it's okay to put your trust in him, both for this life and the next. Of course, how we respond to Jesus is entirely up to us, isn't it? In the chapter, some decide to follow, others flee, some choose to serve, others choose to disobey. The choice is always ours. Jesus isn't forceful. I'd encourage you as you read the chapter this week to think about the different ways in which people responded to him, both negative and positive. Perhaps you're someone who needs to make a little more room for Jesus in your life. Maybe you're someone who needs to make straighter paths for him this morning. John calls people to repentance and in the Greek it's the word metanoia. Metanoia, that's your second Greek word today. Go away sounding really smart. Um, It refers to a a transformative change of heart. It's about something changing in our heart. Is there a sin that has taken a hold of you recently? John says if if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us of all of our sin and cleanse us of unrighteousness. We don't need to go and jump in the River Jordan, we just need to hold our hands up and say, God, I'm sorry. I'm sorry I've been going the wrong way. Let me turn around and, and, and start again. I'm sorry that my life has not been a straight path to you recently. But it's been full of potholes and burnt out pubs. Perhaps this morning we just need to get better at recognising who Jesus is. John knew that he wasn't even worthy to stoop down and untie his sandals And yet Jesus died for him. Wow. That's what Jesus did for all of us. We are not worthy of Jesus. And you know what? He doesn't care. He died for you anyway. My question is, is Jesus still the Lord of your life? 
Does he still hold, hold the highest place of honor in your heart and mind? Has he ever occupied that position? As you keep reading Mark, you might find that um, your mind begins to slowly change about this Jesus fellow and who he is and what he's done for you. I wonder if the band would come and join me. I know it's, um, there's a lot of information that I've thrown at you this morning. I'm sorry about that. I just want to get you off on the, the best foot as you kind of launch into these, these studies yourself. But I think there's, there's room for us this morning just to respond to the little bit that we have read together. The little bit that we've tried to understand a bit better together. And I don't know, maybe just as I've been speaking this morning, just something that I've said a part of the scripture maybe that we've read has just kind of settled in your heart. Maybe as you're just thinking about some of those um, challenges there at the end, one of those kind of lit up in your brain and you thought, yeah, that's me. You know what, I do need to make more room in my heart for Jesus. Or yeah, you know what, I'm just, things are tough, I need a bit of hope this morning. I need to be reminded that Jesus has got my back because at the moment I'm just struggling to feel it. Or maybe it's just that thing of, oh, I just... I've stopped recognizing who he is. I've stopped seeing him as the Lord of my life. And so maybe one of those things has just sparked something in you today. And so I just want to leave a minute to respond to this. Maybe we could all stand together. I want to pray for you.